we really do consider ourselves larvae. I think part of my practice of retreat is retreating from my own humanity in a way towards my larvality. What would it mean to actually align myself with the smallest things? I mean, on one level, we're thinking of the larval in a material form as insects. But we're also thinking of larval as process, as process as metamorphosis. That so much of what we thought of metaphorically is already kind of existent in the forms or in the actual physical process of metamorphosis. And for us, really what we feel is necessary for us to do right now as, as a culture, as a community, is to reinvent who we are, what we look like, both in terms of form and content, so that we're unrecognizable to ourselves. That it's really in the experience that the richness exists. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Anuj Vaija. Anuj is a teacher and student, media performance maker, and curator whose work meanders around the themes of queer ecology. His work is deeply invested in questions of process and collaboration, and his speculative cinema project, Forest Tales, not only narrates eco-tales at the horizon of the sixth extinction, but also imagines the cinematic process and apparatus itself, revealing cinema as a corporeal and land-based practice. In this episode, Anuj and I discuss the ecological impact of the cinematic medium. We talk about scope as a lens for filmmaking, creating conversational settings to reflect upon the cinema and the environment, and we dialogue about some of his projects and how they invite a process relational perspective through a kind of storytelling that grapples with the toxic legacy of human exceptionalism. For more information about our sponsor's ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the Theopoetics podcast. I've got a special guest with me today. Um, Anuj Vaija is on the podcast. He is an artist and a curator and uh, works with performance mediums and film mediums to create all kinds of fun things. So we're excited that you came to be with us today, Anush. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Well, I I always like to begin our conversations by allowing our guests to tell a little bit of who they are, um, a little bit of their story, if they would like, and what has formed you to come to the perspective and the work that you're up to today. Absolutely. Um, So I, yeah, I think of myself really as a media performance artist, um, as a curator, a scholar, and working between education, between the arts. Um, And really, I think of all of these different mediums as um, informing one another. So I really think of the classroom as a curatorial space as well, um, as a performative space as well. And so really kind of drawing from all these different things that I do. and they really, um, yeah, they definitely inform one another in very deep ways. Um, so I, um, I grew up in India, um, and uh, it was eight, when I was 18, my family immigrated to the United States. Um, we moved to Pittsburgh. And um, as a typical um, Indian teenager, I was geared for a career in, in the sciences and biology. And when I first came in the 90s, um, in India now, I guess there's a lot more uh, sort of diversity of, of careers and choices that people make and can make. But when I was growing up, it was, 
it was very like if you went you went into business you went into the sciences you went into engineering or medicine and so the arts while i always uh, was participated in the arts um through my childhood i did theater um it wasn't something i ever thought of as a career until i came to the united states and then all of a sudden so many things were possible um and it's interesting so i started off in biology first as as a major and then i moved to linguistics and then finally ended up in theater and english um and then i went to grad school uh for media arts got uh really interested in film and media and then i taught uh for numerous years uh for four years in the chicago public schools doing arts integration and working in sort of low income minority communities really thinking about um how to use media as a way to um to enable uh, empowerment enable young people to tell their own stories but there was i after a while working in that space um it was a little hard for me to think about technology or i wanted to grapple with the issue of technology because it was often positioned as something that was um positive in and of itself and there was a little bit of technology fetishism so you know so i really wanted to grapple with that and so i left that work and then moved and i just finished art school then as well and did not want to make art again for the rest of my life uh. <laughs> uh, as it happens for many people after art school um and then moved out to the bay area following numerous friends uh came back to my interest in botany and biology in a different way through horticulture and started working with plants and then got back into education again i started working at the uh, the pacific film archive um in berkeley both as a curator and uh as a librarian working a lot with teachers actually um a lot of the things i've been thinking about in terms of technology literacy not just media literacy but also how we need to be more literate about illiterate about the technologies that we use so kind of trying to bring that to the classroom in the barrier um and then i started curating for third eye which is a south asian film festival and then i'm i'm back now um and i well i guess then there were uh, in 2010 i lost my job at the psa and it was the best thing that ever happened in some ways because mm-hmm. it allowed me to get back to my own practice because i've been curating and looking at other people's work for a long time um and so then i spent another 5 years really thinking about my own practice and what i wanted to do and really wanted to come back to performance um and that's where a lot of my work is now is between film and performance i've always kind of worked between two um but i've always used performance as a way to talk about the representational representations of of communities of bodies on the screen and so i really started to then think about in those years in the last 5 6 years i've really started to think about um not just cinema uh, the representations of cinema but cinema as method and the materiality of cinema as well which kind of built upon uh, a lot of the work i was doing in technology literacy i also started teaching at that time at the university level which i hadn't done before and that's when a lot of this these ideas around how the classroom is a curatorial space and performative space all of those kind of came together uh for me i taught in the women and gender studies and women gender and sexuality studies program at montclair in new jersey for 3 wow. years 
and helped kind of build our queer studies program. And then, and now I'm in a grad school, grad school at UC Davis in a performance studies program, um, really thinking about all of these issues and seeing how I can bring them all together in my work. So education is definitely um, a central part of this work um, that I do, um, but also definitely um, art and the artistic process. I'm very interested in process um, and process-based work and process-based philosophy, which I've been introduced to since I've come here, uh, Whitehead and um, that whole school of process-based yeah. philosophy, which has also brought me back into theology then and right. spirituality and the spiritual practice. And also in terms of my own work, I've moved from doing queer studies really thinking of queerness and moving away from thinking of it just as sexuality to thinking about it as uh, issues of normativity and how the normal is constructed, which right. would be around sexuality, but it could be around so many other right. issues. And I'm specifically interested now in thinking how uh, queerness kind of intersects with ecology um, and how the human is constructed. Um, because I feel like so much, and a lot of scholars and artists write about this, especially now there is a turn towards the non-human, towards the animal, given the ecological collapse that we're seeing. Um, and um, I guess there always has been in many cultures, non, um, many cultures, right? In global cultures and in indigenous cultures and in Eastern philosophy, there's always been um, attention to the non-human, but I think in the academy, we're seeing that. Yeah. So that's kind of a meandering. It, yes, it is. Where, it's, I'm getting, where I'm at right now. It's, it's beautiful. There's so many entangled um, modes there that we could dive into. And so, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So tell me then, as you have migrated in your own work um, to this space where you're returning to not only an ecological perspective, but also this process perspective. I, I also do process mm -hmm. philosophy, um, would consider myself a Whiteheadian. So um, yeah. this is something that's really interesting to me. So, and tell me about how that is, has brought you back to a praxis of spirituality for you and how you see the work that you're, you're continuing in now as, as a theopoetical work. Um, you know, in many ways for me, um, well, I'll first talk about process because how it relates to spirituality is something I'm still grappling with Yeah. Uh, in many ways. Um, I think part of the, the, the struggle or the challenge um, in having so many different pathways or interests is in really kind of seeing how they all connect with one another. Because in the end, like, um, I'm, I'm not interested in separating all of these things out as that, to say that I'm an artist and that I'm an educator and curator, like all of those things actually inform one another in very deep ways, right? Absolutely. And, and so for me, that's where I think I started to really think about process is, is not just to think about what I'm doing, but also how I'm doing it and, um, and why I'm doing it. And then it became clear, and I guess that's, in, in, a, in a sense, the question of why is what gets back to the spiritual question. And one that I, I started to think about how first, which is when I started to think about process, 
Yeah. And I more recently I've also started to think about why, which mm-hmm. gets to the question of spirituality, really. Yeah. Um, so I'm. Um, I mean, like I said before, I've been making film for for a while, and um, or working with media, uh, both as a curator, making films, uh, performing, using media in my performances, um, and so I've started to really think about then um, what the material impact of cinema or uh, what the carbon footprint of cinema was. It's a conversation that, me, and that started with me and my brother. My brother teaches physics and mathematics at uh, Montclair. And we actually started a project together where um, I got a residency to go to Montclair, work with his physics classroom, and together we built these bicycle power mechanisms and these hand crank mechanisms just to try over a semester to see if it was possible to create a film off the grid without plugging into any electricity or fuel. Wow. So we created these. um, And then it was a project for his class as well, for his students to really think about energy and where it comes from and and all that. And it became very clear immediately that um, it was just going to be very hard for me to make anything of a big scale. So scale became something I started thinking about in in that moment. Um, and as a as a curator for a film festival, um, I've been seeing so much work um, over the last ten years um, that um, and it was it, it was interesting to see how I, I run a South Asian film festival, South Asian uh, film festival here in San Francisco, and we get a lot of indie films, um, and it was. Interesting to see how in the beginning of the film festival, a lot of the films we were showing were very small budget. And in the 10 years, with the coming of, of better digital technologies, that the scale of the films and kind of their production values and also like how they plugged into industry got more and um, got larger in scale. And that kind of, that was something I wanted to really kind of grapple with and think about. And that's what actually prompted this project with my brother to really think about energy. Yeah. Um, and so I went back, I did more research. Like I felt like I needed to go back and actually do more scholarship and actually learn more about this. And um, I read this amazing book called The Cinematic Footprint uh, by Nadia Bozak. And uh, that kind of changed uh, my relationship to film in a deep way. And I actually felt out of love with cinema for a long time. Wow. As, I mean, it's something, I love, I'm a cinephile and I love cinema. Yeah, yeah. Philia, like love can be great, but love can also be toxic. It can right? be blinding, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so it, it's taken me a good five years since I started that project to really fall back in love with cinema to kind of come back to it in a way that I really want to engage with it. And so the how of it is something I've really been Mm. thinking about. And so that's when I started to actually also develop this Forest Tales project, which was um, a retelling of the Ramayana, which is this Indian epic, um, which is deeply embedded in Indian politics as well. And I really wanted to think of it through the small voices in, in the story and the voice of Sita, who is the daughter of the earth. And, um, and for me, um, I really wondered like, why if Sita is the daughter of the earth, does she emerge as human? Like, could she emerge as a non-human in the story? And so 
she emerges as a forest in my retelling. And in my conversations with Sita as I was developing this project, she really asked me, or they really asked me to think about, um, like, is a film the most ecological way to tell my story? And so right. that's when I start really think about, okay, how do I make sure that my methods actually also mirror uh, my content? And how yeah. do I actually not separate these things, but actually think of them holistically? Right. Um, so non-duality, right? Like, this is yeah. also goes back to the question of non-duality sure. and process and yeah. um, and that's that's where the work is moving to, moving me to now is really to think about process right. um, both in the question of how as I said before and also yeah. for the why yeah well I think that you know I, I read on your website one of the I think you said something around you know an ecological film is one that doesn't get made or something like that, right? Right, right. And uh, I think process, when you enter into um, beginning to see the world from an ecological perspective, um, uh, you can never see the world the same way again. And so you start to see relationships and entanglings. You start to see uh, nature in a different way. I think it, it invites us to consider our place as human bodies in a larger ecology. Um, and yeah. to, and I, I loved also that in, in some of the, the work I was reviewing that you shared with me, uh, this idea of human exceptionalism um, is yeah. something that, that hopefully a process perspective or a naturalist perspective would, would help us circumvent, you know? Um, so tell me like in your, in your own journeying into this, um, as you're expressing this sort of ecological and, and process perspective through um, the medium of, of performance and film, but also trying to have this consciousness about um, how the art that you're producing affects the environment, um, what are you seeing as a, as a way forward for your work, but also for cinema in general, uh, to not only reduce their footprint, but to have some sort of sustainability in the art making. Yeah, um, no, this is precisely what I'm trying to figure out through my dissertation work. Yeah. And the one thing that I really feel like uh, for me, what I, um, the framework that's emerged from this, from this project is really to think of the politics of retreat. Um, and to think of retreat in multiple ways, both one is a, as a verb where you're retreating, um, retreating from something, sure, but, um, but maybe one can think of it in a different way as a retreat to something so that it's also kind of reorienting you so that your frame, your, your perspective or your frame of vision actually shifts as well. So you're actually turning away from something, right? And when you turn away from something, then it, it's not actually defeat. It's actually a very intentional kind of reorientation of the self, right? So I'm thinking of retreat that way, but then I'm also thinking of retreat as a noun, as a place to retreat to in order uh, for self-care, for self-reflection, retreat in kind of a spiritual sense as well. Um, and ultimately, to me, that goes back to the question of why. Like, why is it that I'm making cinema? What is it that I'm trying yeah. to do uh, through the cinematic uh, medium? Definitely, it's about storytelling and, um, and about sharing stories and the power of stories, the power of images, all of those things. 
are definitely um, things that I'm interested in exploring and engaging with. Um, but then power, like if it is, if this medium is so powerful, then I feel like power is something that, if power is something that corrupts, then and the medium is so powerful, then how do we be careful in how we engage with it, right? And so for me, a politics of retreat is a politics of self-reflexivity, yeah. of care, but care that actually looks at both, like thinking of care in a holistic way that isn't just looking at social impact, but that's also looking at environmental impact. Um, so, and, and actually you mentioned the word community and ecology. And for me, I'm starting to really think of community and ecology as synonymous words. Uh, they're actually not separate, right? Like, yeah. and ecologies can be dysfunctional or they can be functional. And right. adjust communities can be functional or dysfunctional. We have a certain way of kind of using the word community in a romanticized way. Sure. But in reality, community is struggling, right? It's struggling with those you agree with, those you don't agree with. Um, because in the end, like in Buddhism, like the whole idea of the Bodhisattva coming back is the idea of actually taking everyone along in the end, right? It's not like uh, salvation for humanity or for the, for the world doesn't happen through salvation for the self but through salvation for everyone, human, non-human, plants, animals, rocks, all of it, right? Yeah. And so I'm trying to kind of come back to cinema through that perspective. So to think, I'm trying to think of it as a Buddhist cinema, like what might a Buddhist cinema look like? Not as representation, but as method. Yeah, that's a great question. Right. Mm. And so that means, um, and since Buddhism is so much about unbecoming, it's about um, kind of undoing or unlearning yeah. what we have learned in many ways, right? To see how there is this underlying connection, to see how community is ecology. Yeah. Then how might um, cinema aid in that process for me? And that's where really paying attention to the process of cinema. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not to give up cinema. Like at some point I was very purist about it. Like, oh, I can't do cinema anymore. Right, right. Reductionist about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've come back now realizing, oh, I really love cinema and I love images and I love that process. I love working with people. So how can I do cinema differently? How can we expand what cinema means? So I started thinking about it in terms of the cinematic as opposed to cinema itself. Like yeah. what is it? around cinema the experience um, in a sense yeah yeah absolutely the experience of cinema which then makes the body visible because yeah. you experience cinema through the body so i'm really thinking of cinema now as a land-based practice um and as a body-based practice as a corporeal practice right and so yeah. those are the aspects of cinema that i'm interested in sort of mm. delving deeper into yeah and this is something that I feel like I've been dealing with on my own, in my own practice. But um, my friend who's here, Nishta, who's a filmmaker, and I, we've been having conversations about this the last two days. Because for me now, I really want to kind of move beyond um, thinking about it in my own practice to see how can I engage the community of filmmakers and artists in thinking about this with me. Yeah. Because as a sole person, it's hard to, to 
keep this practice alive, right? right. To move different directions. And, and I feel like, I mean, we are, we are entangled with other people. And so like the entanglements have to move in a direction. And so hopefully Third Eye, the film festival that I run, will become a place to actually engage in community conversations. Um, I mean, we've already always had this, this series. We, we do the series called Third Eye's Green Eye which is a way of using cinema to talk about environmental issues. But they've always been not about the, the, the environmental issues as related to the cinematic method. They've always been about, oh, here's a film about water issues. Or here's right, right. Degradation. Yeah. So I would love to launch a series that actually talks about the environmental impacts of cinema itself as a way to engage the community in thinking about it especially in Silicon Valley, because you can't really separate cinema from like IT anymore, right? Like in a way, like information technology, digital technology, all of those things are embedded in one another. Yeah. Well, it's, it strikes me that what you're talking about is almost like another register of engagement and conversation around the topic of um, ecological awareness as it relates to the cinematic method. And so, I think yeah. even as I, I sense that even some of the medium that you have ended up expressing your own art through has migrated from, you know, from a full length, large production cinema to something smaller in scale. You mentioned scale earlier that, right. that there's all, you know, in, in that regard, there's all kinds of um, new processes or, or new um, new ways to be making cinema that, that could um, downscale, that, that, could, that could help this, yeah. entire, um, this entire, entire issue. So I'm curious, you know, as you, as you think about where cinema is at on a larger scale in terms of perhaps American cinema, perhaps the, the larger, you know, machines that are in motion that, that really aren't gonna probably be stopped anytime soon, like, what, what do you envision for engagement around this issue and what could a, a future of ecological cinema look like um, where, where we're starting to move the conversations and move the production to, to have a, a greener worldview? I mean, I'm just curious because I think it feels so large scale to me that it's just like, how is this thing going to be stopped? How is it, you know, or how is it going to be moving yeah. the right direction? So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, um, I don't know if things can be stopped in a way, right? Like, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. And then, so for me, it's about making interventions into it and like finding community and actually starting a conversation. Um, and I think, who knows, who knows? I think like to the emergent, Yeah. it is the, it is an emergent field, right? Like where right. it is known and it's something that we, that we need to grapple with together. And so for me right now, I really am invested in having this conversation in groups with groups of people. You know, it's interesting because it's in, as I've started to tell people about this project, people are sending me all of these different um, projects or information about these projects or pointers to projects that are happening already that are moving towards this spectrum this idea of a speculative cinema. So a friend of mine sent me this, uh, was it a show somewhere in Europe? I forget exactly where, um, but it was a, an entire show that was on the speculative cinema. And it was people who invite 
Um, it's it's a gallery show, but it is descriptions of cinema, and people are invited to imagine the films, right? Which is exactly what I'm doing, and so people are doing this already in so many different places. Um, there was a show at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, where um, this artist uh, worked with um, um, with uh, the Lucas Sound Studios to create a soundtrack for a film. And it was set up in this tower. So you, as the sound is playing, you have this panoramic view of San Francisco and that's the image, right? And so already like the cinematic is something that is embedded in the way we see the world. So yeah, I think people are already realizing that and starting to experiment. I mean, and that's always been since the sick, like since since like the 40s 50s with experimental cinema and then with expanded cinema in the 60s like people have always already been kind of exploring the outer limits of the medium and how to actually intervene in sort of the industrialization of it right i think scale is very much a part of it um both in terms of how much we spend to make films um, like with these new Avengers films and the franchises that keep churning out more right. and more consumptive cinema, both in terms of production, but then also in terms of distribution, right? Like distribution now is not just in movie theaters. Like I, I've, especially after reading Bozak, I've started to really think about distribution as also being deeply and tied in to like the devices that we purchase, right? Sure. Because a lot of us watch films now on computers on handheld devices and then there's the issue of obsolescence so because these devices are constantly there's new versions coming out every year and then they all go into landfills mostly right. in africa or in Asia. um and so i think a conversation about how we might rethink cinema needs to happen at multiple levels and in multiple places um and it needs to think about production but it also needs to i think really deeply think about distribution because we might make a small scale film and a low budget film but in the end even indie filmmakers who make low budget films want it distributed through the big distribution companies right right and they're right. part of the system so yeah i think having conversations about individual practice and having conversations about systemic issues is important both mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. um and for me, I feel like this needs to happen from within the filmmaking community. Right. And it's happening already. Like I know even in Hollywood, for instance, like in the last two years, there's been like, um, finally the Producers Guild of America now has, has a, a carbon footprint calculator and, yeah. and, and has like a, a directory of um, ecolo green like uh, vendors for, Right, papers and costumes and and all of that, but at the same time, eco can sometimes become this shorthand for like greenwashing. Sure, sure. Right. And yeah, yeah. So I think it's important for us to think about who's actually putting forth these solutions and right. who's benefiting from them, who's not benefiting from them. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I feel like there's already a a, a different cinema that exists in the world. Yeah. Um, right. And always has, and there always has been that potential. It's just a matter of, of having, of building the networks and, and right. actually um, taking, having those hard ethical conversations with our own peers within our own communities 
And I don't want to know, think about where we might end up because who knows where we might end up. Like sure. I just want to think about where we might make the next step. And so for me, the next step is really working with Third Eye to do more education and kind of conversations in the community around it. Maybe to set up a studio that does an off the grid, like what I started to do with my own practice what might it be to scale? What might it mean to scale that up to make yeah. that a systemic, yeah, um, kind of um, project? Yeah. So I think, yeah, experimentation is where it's at. I think. With that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you shared. Uh, I love that because you know, for me, the thing I was thinking as you were just sharing was this ethical dimension or the justice component of filmmaking here, uh, which is seems to be eco justice or eco ethics here, you know, that we're talking about. And uh, obviously there, you already named some of the systems that are in play in terms of distribution, in terms of the device, um, the obsolescence you said of the devices. Uh, I think of the extractionary kind of issues of how we're making this. So there's all these systems that are functioning together to, to create uh, the complex problems that we're, we're seeing in our world. And so, um, I think it's going to take people like yourself curating environments and conversations and and spaces where um, where these conversations can be had. Um, and my hope is that that you know through even podcasts like this that that the message yeah. can get out and trickle down and um, and influence other people as well. So um, because this this seems to me this ethical component, this justice component seems to be thoroughly uh, theopoetical, you know, in nature. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it came back with, it came back, it um, kind of hit me when I started reading about, um, about e-waste specifically and how e-waste and how e-waste was being sent to Asia. And here we are running a South Asian film festival and, you know, and we're sitting in the first world doing this this work showing films about the issues in in south asia and then we're sending back all the e-waste that generated from making these films back to those places and so there was something that didn't like make sense for me entirely in yeah that process i mean then and again like like there is there are real needs of getting stories out from those places as well. And cinema does reach an enormous number of people. Yeah. Um, and also, like, especially after being introduced also to disability studies in a big way after coming here, I realized that technology for some people is also a matter of survival, right? Like, in terms yeah. of the digital, like, um, my friends in the disability community often challenge me on this project of mine, telling me, Yes, for certain communities, these technologies are really about, like, not about survival, but about um, kind of cultural, their cultural tools, and they're, they're about building networks. But for some of us in the disability community, we're not even at that level. It's for us, technology is basic survival. And, right, like for me, for some of my friends in that community, it's just about being able to communicate with right. other people in the place because of mobility issues and things like that. And so how do you actually hold different needs and different um, uh, balances of technology within different communities, right? Yes. Because yeah. it's not one solution doesn't fit everybody. Right. So that 
So in thinking about ecology for the earth and for non-humans, one can't then all of a sudden uh, put humans, different human communities um, at risk as well. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a complex grappling. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, wow. It, there, there's always, you know, critiques that can be made, you know, that, that are so important to integrate um, in that regard. And so thank you yeah. for, again, highlighting another important facet of the conversation, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so, so let's, for a moment, I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about your work. Uh, so you shared with me a couple of projects. Um, the first one I'd love for you to um, talk about is the larval rock stars. I think w without people being able to see or hear this, it's going to need a little explanation, you know? So what, what is, what are larval rock stars? What are you, what are you doing in that project? And what does it mean to you to have a larval twin? Well, first I have to, if I'm going to talk about larval rock stars, I need to start with a larval screen. So here goes. <laughs> That's basically what a larval rock right. is. In a sense, it's a project that is about the limitations of language, the limitations of knowledge and knowledge making, and how um, really of moving beyond um, what we call the rhetorical rectum, just because language, we make so, we just keep spewing out language and talking and think we make sense when often right. kind of not real, we're basing all of this making sense on, on, on knowledge that is really probably a small percentage of what is to be known, right? And as I learn more, I realize that um, that um, I know less and less and less, and that what I take for certain is based on knowing less and less and less. And so, yeah. So really, Love Rock Stars is is a project about humility. It's a project about humor. It's a project about the absurdity of the human experience. And it's really very much a project about collaboration and about um, non the non self or the non individual. Um, uh, so Prabha Pilar is an amazing scholar and artist who I work with, um, and she uh, we've been friends for about fifteen years now. And she works um, on technology as well. She uh, works on a critique of of. Um, technology especially as it relates to to um to uh communities of color to queer communities to um um to uh latin american communities uh Prabha herself is from colombia and um and has lived has been in, um in the u.s since she was a child um and has a very interesting perspective because her um her father worked in in the um, worked for IBM, and so she comes with a very from her childhood. Over the last 40, 50 years, she has seen intimately kind of this this growth, and so her work has always been about making an intervention into that world and bringing a feminist queer uh, critique to that world, uh, and she does it with so much humor. And she positions the whole, um, in her own work, um, uh, she positions, um, and in a lot of feminist science and technology studies, um, we see like technology and science in its modern 
variation as sort of emerging out of a particular, of a very particular Christian doctrine, like of the Christian doctrine of colonialism that was brought to the Americas, right? right? right. And that's one form of Christian um, doctrine. There's so many others, like every religion has its own, so many different facets, right? Sure. And what's making a critique into that particular idea of dominion, which is about human exceptionalism, um, and kind of um, making space to have conversations about that. And so um, that's where I met Prabhu is, um, when I met her, that was the work that she was doing. And, and we are both very interested in humor and the absurd and yeah. became great friends. And the larval was something actually that just kind of started as a joke for both of us. We would run around screaming and, and we, I mean, we, once we met, we kind of figured out very soon that really our relationship precedes our current, current lifetimes. Like we, we were kindred souls and we call each other like siblings from different mothers. Yeah. And yeah. actually our whole mythology is that we've actually met in so many previous lifetimes. Um, and so we think of ourselves as distributed intelligences and, which is the truth for everyone, really, right? Like, we're our, the way we make knowledge is not a singular individual process, really. We make knowledge because other people before us have actually done so much work, and I'm constantly in conversation with so many people. So for us, it was, it was that connection that we had uh, that, was, that was more than material. It was intuitive. It was psychic. Um, um, it was based on tremendous um, love and acceptance and just unconditional love. And so yeah. for me, that's what my larval twin is, is someone who is that person I can trust implicitly about everything mm. that I can share um, things that I might not share with yeah. other people in public. Someone yeah. who I trust can help me shape things and challenge me. Um, yeah fiercely challenged me on my ideas, knowing full well that actually um, that, that, that the challenge is coming from a place of love and not from a right. place pulling me down. Yeah. And I think that's hard sometimes, especially in academia, in public spaces, where we're all performing politics in different ways. And so my relationship with her is outside of politics for me. It's really about learning how to be a better person in this world, how to be a better ethical person, and how we can help each other do that. Um, and, and, so, and so that's where, in a way, it started off as this fun thing that we would do with friends. We would scream at them and kind of make up these stories about the, the larval, about right. our larval kingdom and about yeah. us, these post-human. We're both very interested in the post-human. Um, not the post-human, because that has also some very some other right. uh, connotations, but really in undoing the human or yeah. in challenging that idea of the human. And so we consider ourselves, I, I, we really do consider ourselves larvae. Like I, I think part of my practice of retreat is retreating from my own humanity in a way towards my larvality. Yeah. So kind, yeah. Of, kind of what would it mean to actually align myself with the smallest things uh, the yeah. smallest beings on earth, right? Um, yeah. But the smallest are also like larva or um, 
I mean, on one level, we're thinking of larva, lar the larval in a material form as insects or right. as, you know, um, as forms, but we're also thinking of larvalist process as the process is metamorphosis, right, of change. Yeah. So we're kind of dealing with the metaphor and the material through right. this project, but really trying to approach it through a sense of humor, through a sense of wanting to... Um, move towards what is unknown really to yeah. um so the question mark we think of the question mark as what guides our 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 process um uh, we talk about the question mark as what we worship because it is the unknown yeah um, yeah and, and so that's where that's where the project kind of grew out of and then we had a couple of residencies together and we started to actually say okay let's look into larva let's do some research what are larva right right let's look into it it was just kind of amazing to see that so much of what we thought of metaphorically is already kind of existent in the forms in the idea of or in the actual process the physical process of metamorphosis like when you know when insects like for instance when a butterfly turns into a pupa, what happens is that it's entire, in a chrysalis, the entire body kind of liquefies and they have these imaginal discs which are kind of these just placeholders of, of like genetic material or something that are just placeholders for what the previous form was. So it's just the essential parts that remain, everything else liquefies and what reemerges is a completely different form. Wow. Right? That's unrecognized yeah. the previous form. Yeah. And for us, really what we feel is necessary for us to do right now as, as a culture, as a community, is to reinvent who we are, what we look like, both in terms of form and content, so that we're unrecognizable to ourselves because... Yeah. If we are able to recognize ourselves in the direction we're going in, it's that's bad news. Sure. It doesn't look too good. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I I noticed that you you had said in one of your art pieces was that larval rock stars reject the egocentric self-recruitment of the category of the human. And what I what I yeah. sense in what you're saying is is not only is that a retreat into something deeper for yourself that that transcends perhaps the the humanity of who you are but also that in your connectedness to another person that you are you are entering into a mutuality there that also yeah. or a relationality perhaps from a process uh, language perspective that that uh, creates a some connection beyond yourself um, and that that seems to me to be also another way to to be larval, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, and open to change, being open to um, to to relationality. Absolutely, and to collaboration. And yeah. In a deep way, which is hard. Collaboration is really hard. Yeah. Because then you can listen to people and. Yeah. Right what they say. <laughs> yeah. And you have to give yourself away uh, in a sense. Yeah. You have to yeah. be willing. To give, yeah, absolutely. You have to be willing to give yourself away. Yeah. Not hold on too much to a sense of self. Right. So, so yeah. ultimately like in the end for both of us, it's not at all product that matters. It's, it mm -hmm. is 
It is the experience of working with one another that drives our project. It's the experience of being in the same place, of laughing uncontrollably for hours together. Yeah. We were laugh nonstop for days. We laugh together. And that That's is just fun. as well. Um, um, and it just, yeah, it's a, just a different way of being in the world. And it's healing also because at other times we're actually deeply depressed with reading the news. You turn on the news and it's, deeply depressing and yeah but we also don't want to fall into a a mode of like apocalyptic thinking you know like how do we right. actually the present and do the work that's necessary in the present yeah so without kind of thinking giving up on the future right, right. Per- yeah perhaps a more constructive posture yeah. um uh, in that regard um Fascinating. Okay, so the the other work I wanted to ask you about was eco poetics for a pluriverse uh, in yeah. tran- in transit. Um, uh, I got to watch some of that uh, movement as well, and this idea of ephemerality came up, yeah. um, and how the the images that are sort of juxtaposed next to each other and the ephemerality of them moving um, yeah. is a bridging. Uh, work and so I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about what that is and then um, feel free to reflect on that yeah so that project um, kind of expands on the collaboration so so Larval Rockstars is um, Prabha and me and that's actually it's interesting we also kind of came on the idea of Larva because if you put Prabha's last name and my last name together actually Larva is contained right in the middle of it P Larva Oh, that's funny. Yeah, our last names together. I mean, these are the the signs that we look for. Right, right. right. To make sense, absurd sense of our project. But um, so that was already a collaboration. And and then Prabha had been collaborating uh, with Alex Wilson, who is um, a scholar and an activist uh, from First Nations. She's Swampy Cree up in um, um, First Nations in Northern Canada. And... I had been working with um, a couple of artists in in Scandinavia. Mikko um, Nikolic, who is from Serbia but lives um, in Sweden, and uh, with Elin Bister, who's from Norway, and we all met at this at this um, residency called um, um, Queer Ecologies, and it's a lot of artists who are working with the non-human, with um, but also with indigenous thought. Um, and uh, with ideas of land and how we can bring those voices into play and give weight to voices. How do we actually hear in the first place uh, in a different way? How do we account for different ways of speaking, uh, different ways of listening? Um, And um, Ellen's work is a lot about working with birds and especially endangered birds um, in the Rust um, archipelago in Norway, where she's from. And uh, Mirko's work is very much about dealing with minerals. Um, yeah. Kind of like even, I mean, we talk about the human and the non-human, but the non-human often becomes the animal. But then for him, he's like, what about mountains? Like, where do, how do we account for the sentience of mountains? Because he, he believes, and I believe, that actually land speaks. This is, um, yeah. and land thinks, right? And, yeah. and so, and this is also for, for Alex Wilson, who is Swampy Cree, 
for her, this is part of Native thought and knowledge. This is what she's grown up with forever, right? Um, and so well, we got invited to present at this conference in, in Paris. It was this new materialisms conference, it's, um, um, which is a turn, which is this movement within uh, the academy. Um, um, which is trying to make space for um, the non-human and um, folks like Bruno Latour, who's a French uh, philosopher, mm -hmm. um, John Haraway, all of these folks um, mm -hmm. who are part of this movement, larger movement. And um, but oftentimes, what happens in those spaces is that um, it's human beings who are talking for the non-human, right? And for us, that became a little problematic, like, because then in the end, like, we're the ones doing all the translating. And then there's a certain sense in which um, it then becomes human-centric again. And then there's also in the translation um, a certain way of putting, uh, of not really accounting or, or sensing that we know because we translate that we know. Right. Whereas right. in fact, uh, just because you listen and because you're able to hear doesn't mean that you actually understand, right? Right. And so, right. so also we also wanted to kind of sit with the fact that that all of us in our individual and multiple collaborations are working in all these multiple places that are that are kind of emerging and changing all at the same time. Yeah. And that in a way, it's never possible to get the full picture. And so we were thinking about like the partial nature of knowledge. And so what we decided was mm. that our intervention into this conference space would be to actually just not have any language. Uh, I mean, we have a little bit of language and that's a laurel rock stars yeah. part, but it's kind of over exuberant language that it's really hard to understand right. even. And so we're trying to use language in a way that actually turns it into this undecipherable thing. Yeah. Um, and then to have the rest of it just be the sounds and the spaces of birds and, and water and, and the stories of all of these different locations that we're, that we're situated in, uh, whether it's uh, the Saskatchewan River Delta or the Redwood Forest in California or, um, or this archipelago in Norway. And of putting those side by side, not with the intent of making meaning, but just putting them side by side, right? So that yeah. you just sit and you experience it and you don't try to make meaning of it. Um, and I feel like that's what really an eco-poetics is, for me, is of, it's sort of a meditative practice of just letting it go flow through you. So it's a process-based practice too, of letting it flow through you without trying to capture it, turn right. it in some kind of knowledge yeah. um, unit. Right, right. Uh, right. That it's really in, ex in the experience that, 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 that is the richness exists. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's so true to experience you know, it's a subjective experience. Um, and, and so it invites a sort of, just like you said, when it, when it comes to the, the listening to nature, perhaps, uh, that it invites a different posture of listening um, when you engage work like that. Um, and so 
Yeah. Yeah. Just, I wanted to thank you for, for sharing that. Um, sure. And yeah. I know that we need to wrap up here in a moment, but go ahead. No, uh, a couple of people had some interesting thoughts because they really felt it was very dissonant, the whole piece. Yeah. Yeah. And they were really trying very hard to say, what is the relationship between all of these places? And so in the end we had to write a written piece that kind of very clearly said we're not looking just for resonances we're also looking for dissonances for the right. huge gap between these places because whatever we fill in with meaning in between those spaces is whatever we're projecting onto it yeah not necessarily emerging places themselves so how do we actually try and prevent ourselves from doing that projecting our own perspectives onto the world and right take a step back? right Love that. Um, well, how can we keep up with your work in the world? Where, for the people who are listening to this, uh, where can they find you and, and keep up with what you're up to? My website is probably the best way to do that. Uh, www.wordpress.handspuncinema. Uh, I have to look that up myself right now. <laughs> but my <laughs> website, yeah, handspuncinema.wordpress.com. Okay. Awesome. Where- you can find that work. And I'm in San Francisco and probably will be doing more work locally around here or in the Bay Area in Davis. Wonderful. Well, thanks for taking a little, a little time out of your schedule to talk Theopoetics with us today. And wanted to just thank you for your creativity and for your heart uh, and for the ways in which you are bridging between these artful mediums and the ecological needs of our time. And, and so thanks for bringing that to our awareness today. Thank you so much, Tim. Like, being introduced to Theopoetics has been really um, great for me, too. It's really opened up a whole new framework of thinking about this, my own work. And I'm really looking forward to actually jumping in in more depth into that, that world. And so I look forward to further conversations. Likewise. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Anuja's work over at handspuncinema.wordpress.com. And you can keep up with us on social media at, at theopoeticscast or tweet at me at, at tdburnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom create beauty, and make peace, everyone.